0: I was invited um, to be uh, on a pastors' roundtable on um, Mark Elfstrand's show on WYLL 1160 AM. The Station is right here in El Grove, and I've done it a few times. I brought two friends with me, two pastor friends with me this time, and I was thinking about one of the questions they asked us. They typically just—it's a pastors' roundtable, right? So they have pastors sitting around. And we've got the microphones in our face, and the big red button that says "live" goes on and. And Mark Elstrand just kind of shoots off some questions. And one of those questions is, uh, why uh, people are leaving churches? Why are so many people leaving churches all over this country? Um, We look back to our spiritual forefathers back in Europe, where Christianity is dying, where some say Christianity is dead christendom is definitely dead and then we look to places where we've sent missionaries that aren't don't haven't had it as long as we have and it's booming in asia and booming in south america and it's booming in africa but it sometimes looks like we're going to be more like our european brothers than than those other countries where it's growing why are people leaving the church And I honestly can't even remember what I said. I don't remember what I said. But I've been thinking about it. I've been thinking about it. And I think one of the major issues we have in our churches, especially in America, is the problem of false conversions. For too long, we've been asking people, are you born again? No? Say this prayer. And then, boom, you're in. It's like abracadabra, you know, hocus pocus. Say these, say these magical words, and you're in. Want to get to heaven? The key to open the door of heaven is say these words. Is that conversion? What do we sell our youth? Oh, I know, I know church is boring, but we've got a great youth program. We just installed trampolines. You know, wall-to-wall trampolines down there. You're going to love it. Invite your friends. Oh, they invite their friends, and they come, and they jump around, and they're like, where's the soda? And we stock the fridge. Not us. This is a hypothetical in case you're new here. There's no trampolines down there. When we look at youth and youth pastors all over the country scrambling to try to figure out what do we do to retain them? They grow up. They go off to college. Some professor puts up on a board the the problem of evil. How can God be good if there's evil everywhere? He's either not good or he's not God. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. How do I deal with that as a freshman at a university? How do I deal with that? Let me think back. Hmm, a lot of trampolines, a lot of soda. What did we give them? Were they converted? Were they converted because we dunked them in water? Were they converted because they read a testimony off a card in front of people? Were they converted because they repeated words off of a prayer card from a Billy Graham crusade? We don't just do this with our youth. We do this with our adults. Worship songs are kind of lame. So let's start off with something by you 2 you know, kind of connect with the people. So they go, oh, this is familiar to me. But church isn't supposed to be familiar to someone who's an unbeliever. So what we're doing in our churches is we're distorting the gospel or bypassing the gospel to get people in the seats. And then we call attendance conversion. But then after a while they go, man, Christianity doesn't work. I thought I was called to be a Christian, and I'm realizing I'm not called to be a Christian. And then they leave, and then we go, What happened? Maybe the coffee's stale. Maybe we need to update the posters a little more often. How, maybe our songs are not jazzed up enough. Maybe the preaching needs to be revved up a little bit. It's sad but we often miss it. And I think for many of us, we start off our walk, our Christian walk, and some point end up and and look up and we go, this isn't the calling I thought I was responding to. And what we're going to see in today's passage is Moses responding to God's call on him wrongly. Moses responding wrongly until he gets to the point where he realizes what's wrong, and then he responds the right way in that call. Now, I'm I'm sure many of you have heard sermons on Moses and the burning bush. That's where we're going to be today. I know y'all have heard sermons on this. I've heard many. And it's really tempting for me to look at that passage and say, okay, what's God's calling on your life? Is your calling to be a doctor? Is your calling to be a professional sports player? Is your calling to be an artist? Is your calling to be a mom, a dad, a husband, a wife? What is your calling in your life? The problem with that sermon is you don't know and neither do I. Sometimes that kind of call changes. Your vocational call changes at some point in your life. Uh, That's just hard to go home and go, huh? let me just try to figure out what I'm supposed to do with my life. What I want to do is take us back to that introduction message to the book of Exodus, remembering what Exodus is ultimately about. Exodus is ultimately not about our individual hobbies, our individual careers. Ultimately, Exodus is about our slavery and bondage to sin and how God's going to get us out. That's what Exodus is about. So when we look at the story of Moses, we see in Moses a little snapshot of what's happening with Israel. Israel is stuck and needs to get out. And they need to respond to God the right way to get out. uh, Moses finds himself stuck and can't get out. And he needs to recognize what he's wrong about so that he can respond to God the right way and then God can use him to get the people out. So to do that, we're going to be in Exodus chapter 2. Exodus chapter 2. You'll remember that Israel was growing as God promised they would, but God also promised that they would be stuck in Israel for four centuries, and we find ourselves where Moses uh, escapes being killed as a baby and is now a grown adult. So if you need a Bible, please slip your hand up. Forgot to do that. Slip your hand up if you need a Bible, we'll bring you one. We find ourselves in Exodus chapter 2. Let's look at verses 11 through 15. Here's Moses responding to his call to be a deliverer. One day when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and looked on their burdens. And he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. You know in the movies when like he's like, 40 years old before he finds out he's a Hebrew? That's that's Hollywood. He knows. And he sees this beating happening. And verse 12, he looked this way and that, and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. When he went out the next day, behold, two Hebrews were struggling together. And he said to the man in the wrong, Why do you strike your companion? He answered, Who made you a prince and a judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, surely the thing is known. When Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian, and he sat down by a well. So we fast forwarded from him being a baby and being nursed by his biological mother, but being raised by... Pharaoh's daughter. So he has kind of two worlds. He understands that he's an Israelite, and he knows the Hebrew culture, the language, the religion, their beliefs. But he also is brought up in Egypt as, as a prince, maybe a sort of redheaded stepchild status of a prince. Uh, clearly, Pharaoh didn't like him. But nonetheless, he had their education, he had their upbringing, he had their culture. And what he does in this passage is he tries to take the deliverance of his people into his own hands because he believes that he's called to do it. Now that's sort of subtle, that's sort of implied, but it's not said. The way we know that for sure is because we read Acts chapter 7, verses 23 to 25. You can turn there, you don't have to. But in Acts chapter 7, 23 to 25, Stephen is giving a sermon, a long one, And he's like, remember Moses? You remember Moses, right? Moses tried to deliver the Hebrews when he beat this guy to death and hit him in the sand because he was thinking in doing that, the Hebrews would go, okay, this is our guy. This is the deliverer that we're waiting for. The problem is it backfired, right? He kills the guy. You would think the guy that got saved, he's grateful. Maybe he was. I don't know. But he runs off and starts telling everybody, hey, this guy killed an Egyptian and hit him. So Moses sees two guys arguing the next day. These are different guys. He doesn't think they have any idea what he did the other day. And he sees them fighting against each other. And hey, guys, we're supposed to get along. We're already oppressed. We don't have to oppress each other. What are you doing? And they go, who are you supposed to be? Our deliverer? What are you going to do? Kill us like you killed that other guy? Uh Uh-oh, the word is out, and he knows he's going to get chased. So he runs. He flees. He stayed in the land of Midian, which is kind of a nomadic area where tribes are just kind of hanging out in their tents at the base of a mountain. And he's left both of the homes that he knew. He left Egypt, that culture, that upbringing, that surrounding that he had by Pharaoh's daughter, and he left his biological family, he left his Israelite people, he's gone. And he's in the middle of nowhere. He's got to be asking himself, man, I thought I was called by God to be a deliverer, and I'm out here like a loser. I'm I'm ejected, rejected, Uh, they want to kill me. And it seems like he had the, some right pieces in place. He was, he was very Jesus-like in verse 11 when he went out to his people and he looked on their burdens, like when Jesus saw the crowds and he was moved with compassion because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Do you remember that? So Moses sees his people, and he has that Christ-like heart toward them. He, he sees that they're oppressed. He sees that they're being abused. He sees that they're being um, taken advantage of and afflicted. And he steps in to save this Israelite. We don't know if that Israelite was going to be beaten to death, but Moses dispatches that Egyptian, to put it nicely, and then hides him in the sand. That's probably not the right move, because that obviously wasn't Jesus' move when he saw the crowds. Jesus didn't kill, Jesus took the death. But you have to recognize that Moses is willing to step up. I mean, he's, he's got the commitment. He's not just looking out on the crowds and going, oh, these are people that are harassed and helpless. And I know I'm supposed to be a deliverer, but, you know, what am I supposed to do? He's like, well, let me just handle this situation, and the next situation I'll just handle that next. Cross that bridge when I get there. But here's the situation in front of me, and I'm going to do something about it. So he's a doer, and he's committed, and he's got passion, maybe a little too much passion. <laughs> Killed the guy. But he's committed. He has the upbringing. Who better to deliver Israel out of Egypt than someone who grew up as an Israelite and an Egyptian? He's, he's a perfect mediator because he's got a foot in both worlds. But then when he shows and demonstrates his commitment, steps up to try to fulfill the role that God has called him to fill, It doesn't work. It backfires. Not only do the people reject his leadership, but he needs to leave and run for his life. So he finds himself stuck, and this is where he ends up. Look at verses 16 to 22. Now the priest of Midian had seven daughters, and they came and drew water. Remember, he went and he's sitting by this well in Midian. They came and drew water and filled the troughs to water their father's flock. The shepherds came and drove them away, but Moses stood up and saved them and watered their flock. When they came home to their father, Raul, he said, How is it that you have come home so soon today? They said, An Egyptian delivered us out of the hand of the shepherds and even drew water for us and watered the flock. He said to his daughters, Well, then where is he? Why have you left the man? Call him that he may eat bread. And Moses was content to dwell with the man. And he gave Moses his daughter, Zipporah. She gave birth to a son, and he called his name Gershom, for he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. Now, if you read that, and it looks really fast, like, whoa, 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 one minute he's he's helping them with water, and the next minute she's having his baby? It's like when you give somebody a real fast, forwarded version of someone's life, you know, he was born in this place, he went to college here. Wait, he was born and then went to college? Like, yeah, years later, you know, not immediately. So this is just a a real quick glimpse. When he decided to live with this man, with this Midianite, uh, he got um, lodging, he found a, a new home, he found a new family, and he gave birth she gave birth. His wife Zipporah gave birth to a son, and he called his name Gershom. And listen to why he named him that. I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. I've been an alien. I've been in a place where I don't belong. I don't belong here, but I'm stuck here. This is this is this is my lot. You know, he's he's coming to grips with his life now, and even names his son. That. So he ends up in a place that's a long way from where he thought he was supposed to be. And you're going to notice that the problem is not that he got the calling wrong. The problem is not, oh, God's not calling me to be a deliverer. I messed that up. I totally got that wrong. No, you got that right. Well, then what was I supposed to do? Was I supposed to have more commitment? No, your commitment was pretty on. Was I supposed to be willing? Was it the lack of willingness? No, you were pretty willing. That was good. Am I not educated enough? Well, you got the Egyptian education. That's probably top-notch around there, around that time. What is it? Do I not care enough about the Hebrew people? No, you cared. You looked out on them like, with compassion. That, that was great. What is the problem? Why am I stuck out here? Well, God steps in. If you look at verses 23 to 25, You'll see a little bit of a hinge in the story where it begins to to shift from Moses getting exiled to him finding his calling the right way. Verse 23, during those many days, the king of Egypt died and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. And God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. What I want you to look at is how this verse compares with how the story started in verse 11. Moses went out to his people, looked on their burdens, and saw right? Moses looks, sees the oppression, he sees the oppression, and he steps in to deliver and can't. Now we get to this paragraph in verses 23 to 25, and we see the author telling us that God, verse 24, hears their groaning, remembers his covenant, and God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. And now the story is going to change. In other words, the not so subtle hint that we're getting from the author is Moses, here's the problem people need to be delivered. Moses goes out there and knows that he's called to do this. He sees it and he tries. And he can't. It backfires. It's impossible. He can't do it. You're reading the story and you're like, oh, what's going to happen? He's stuck in the wilderness. He's with the Midianites. How can he possibly save the Hebrews? And then this verse comes in. God looked out and saw the oppression and hurt his people. And God knew. The story doesn't change because Moses steps up. The story changes because God steps up. And we begin to see maybe a hint as to what Moses' problem was. The passion was there. The commitment was there. The energy was there. The desire was there. He wanted to do it, but he couldn't do it. God has to do it. And so the text makes that really clear. In fact, I love how it emphasizes the crying and the the groaning and the crying out for help. And you would think it would say, and God heard their groaning, and God stepped in because they just groaned so much. No, no. Why did God step in? Because he remembered his covenant. In other words, it's not like God is sitting up there sleeping, you know, bored, distracted. You know, he's playing cards with the other members of the Trinity or something. And the groaning was so loud that, you know, God finally said, you know what, fine. You know, you, you twisted my arm. The prayer was so much, the crying out was so effective, it was so loud and so persistent that you finally twisted my arm to do something that I didn't really want to do, but you twisted my arm into doing it, fine, I'll do it. See, that would give Israel a little bit credit, right? That would, that would mean Israel could say, man, God was up there kind of sleeping and kind of ignoring, but we, we groaned, we cried. You remember those long services we had after a long day of, of making bricks, in the big mortar pits, and we would still, with the very little energy that we had left, we would still go to prayer meeting and cry out to God. That's how you start a revival. You pray more. You pray harder. You know, you get those groups going. You do all-night vigils. That's how you do it. No, it's not. God did it not because, ultimately, because they were groaning. He did it because of the covenant that he already made. In other words, he already promised, I'm going to do this. Well, then why the emphasis on the groaning? Because that's where he wanted the people to be before he started his work. On their knees. And that's Moses' problem. See, Moses' problem is, hey, look at this situation. I'm called to deliver these people. Watch this. I'm going to beat this guy. What was he thinking? He's going to start beating all the Egyptians one at a time and hiding them in sand pits? It wasn't a very logical plan. I'm going to deliver these people by taking them out one at a time. You know, like this is a Tom Clancy flick or something. No, that's not going to happen. So he's sitting out in the wilderness and he's still confused. Why did this happen? God has this calling we're supposed to deliver and it didn't work. And this is a little hint, verses 23 to 25. Before God has Moses figure it out, he wants you, the reader, to start figuring out that maybe the problem was Moses took deliverance into his own hands and didn't work, and deliverance can only happen when God takes it into his own hands, and then it'll work. So the burning bush episode is in chapter 3. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law, Jethro, the priest of Midian, and he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. So you'll notice what got Moses' attention wasn't the fact that a bush was burning. Brush fires were probably common. But it's that a singular bush was burning and wouldn't finish burning. So... Verse 3, and Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight. Why the bush is not burned? When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. And then he said, do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Here's a confrontation with God that looks very different than people's confrontation with God in many churches that are losing people. Because what they present about God is a caricature of God. A big lovey-dovey God, you know, with rosy cheeks. Come sit up on my lap and I'll give you an answer to your prayer. You know, like he's he's Santa Claus. But you see a very different confrontation here. It's not that he's going to be struck down with lightning. It's not that God doesn't want him to approach. It's not that God doesn't want a relationship with Moses. It's that the relationship is going to be on his terms, not yours. And so the sandals that you use to walk everywhere else, The sandals that you use to shepherd, the sandals that you use to walk with your family, the the sandals that you use to go take a hike, the sandals that you use in the grass and the dirt and the fields, you can't do that, use those here, because this is a special place. This place is different. So what God is communicating to him is holiness, and the word holy means set apart, different So he tells him to take the sandals off his feet. Why? Because the place you're standing is holy ground. It's funny when I read scholars really scratch their heads to think about, man, what was the cultural element that really caused the sandals to have to be removed? What is it about sandals? And they're going into, and I love these guys because they do stuff that I can't do. But I'm like, maybe sometimes we're thinking too hard. How many of us have homes where it would just be rude if I come out of the rain and I just walk all over your carpet? Would that be rude? This is your home. Right? This isn't Walmart. This is your house. This is your residence. Take your shoes off. Right? Um, and some of us, were okay with that. But especially in some cultures, and especially in some cultures, you don't just walk around the house with the same shoes you use to walk all over the place. Germs and dirt and all kinds of grime, and you're just treating the house like it's everywhere else. Think of the cultures where there's more sitting on the floor. We hate the floor. That's why... I don't want to go too off on a tangent. All our chairs are like two feet off the floor, right? There's cultures, they just sit the floor. The floor is not dirty, but they certainly wouldn't want you trampling dirt in there with your grimy shoes, right? Not that hard to understand what God is communicating here. This is more than a living room, and this is more than plush carpet. This is holy ground, and taking off your sandals is a symbol of you recognizing that. This is different. I'm not Pharaoh. I'm not your mom. I'm God and I'm holy. And God communicates it with a bush that's on fire. You know, there's other ways he could have done it, but the fire is going to be a theme that we're going to see throughout the book of Exodus, where God communicates his his untouchableness, right? When they're going through the Red Sea, how does he block the Egyptian army? Pillar of fire, right? And so we see that fire is God's consuming differentness, So that if you waltz up to God, like you can just touch him and and be okay, you're going to get burned. But it's not so that Moses stays away. He wants Moses to approach as long as Moses approaches in the humility that recognizes that God is God and Moses is not. That's what holiness is about. I'm different, so take off your shoes and watch me burn in this bush while I talk to you. And then seven to twelve gives us the key that Moses was missing last time he tried to deliver verse seven. Then the Lord said, "I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of the land out of that land to a good and broad land, the land flowing with milk and honey." He said, but I will be with you, and this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. So what you're seeing here is God is saying, okay, I have you out here in this wilderness, and Moses is a different Moses than he was 40 years prior, when he was kicked out or when he ran. Because the Moses back then would have said, Who am I to deliver them? I'll tell you who I am. I'm Moses, man. God has had his hand on me from the beginning, man. I was floating in the Nile River in a boat. Pharaoh's daughter picked me up, grabbed me, raised me. I've got the education. I know both peoples. I speak two languages. Who else could be the deliverer? I'm the guy. Now God is saying, hey, take off your sandals. I want to tell you something. You're going to go deliver the people. The old Moses, 40-year-old Moses, would have said, all right, let's go. 80-year-old Moses is like, I can't. I already learned that lesson. I can't do it. Who am I to do it? But you see, that's exactly where God wants him. Just like that's exactly where God wanted Israel, on their knees groaning and crying before he honors his covenant. So he wants them there. Who am I that I should go? God doesn't answer in verse 12. I'll tell you who you are. You're awesome. You're so great, Moses. God's answer to him is, you're asking the wrong question. You're asking who you are. You should be asking who I am. Because I'm going to go. See, God's presence is key to God's calling. If God calls you, his presence is key for you to respond to that call. Now again, if Exodus is mainly about deliverance from sin, what we understand is that we can respond to God's call out of sin wrongly. God calls us out of sin, out of slavery to sin, and we go, yes, I respond to that call. I got this. Ten years later, we're burned out Christians. We're sick of the church. We're tired of sermons. We don't want to read the Bible anymore. And then we leave. Everyone else is wondering what happened. And it's not that something happened ten years later. It's ten years prior when you became a Christian. You didn't really become a Christian. Because you didn't say, God, I need you to come into my life and do this. What you did was you said, God, I like the package deal. I'm going to do this. That's a false conversion. So Moses got off to a false start. Right call, right passion, right commitment, right circumstances, right education, right setup. Why didn't it deliver? Why wasn't he able to deliver? Because back then he was saying, I've got this. Why is he ready to deliver now? Because now he's saying, I don't got this. I don't got this. And God is like, great. I'm glad you recognize that because now you're ready. Took 80 years, but now you're ready. So what is the right question? If the right question isn't who am I to do it, who am I? The right question is who is God, which God brings him to in verse 13. Then Moses said to God, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me what is his name, what shall I say to them? See, that's, that's Moses' way of asking, okay, who am I? That's not the right question. Who are you? That's the right question, so let me ask it. Who are you? Who do I say? That's probably hypothetical. You don't know, say hypothetically, I go over there, and they want to know who you are. Moses wants to know who he is. Right? And God says to Moses, I am who I am. I am who I am. Now, when he says that, it's a little bit cryptic, but I think most pastors, scholars, Christians most agree that what God is communicating is His self sufficiency. I don't, I don't, I don't need a regular name like you guys do. Like you named your son Gershom because oh, surgeon or soldier, I got it. Like people's names have a particular attribute that they become something that matches that attribute. But I'm bigger than that. I can't be locked down into a name that means rock or a name that means river or a name that means wind. You know, like other religions do with their gods. This is the God of sun. This is the God of the moon. This is the God of war. No one God can cover everything, even though they're gods. I mean, you have to kind of break it up. They're the God of romance and the God of and God is like, I'm not the God of something specific. I just am. I don't need anything. I didn't come from anywhere. I'm not going anywhere. I'm not dying. I wasn't born. I just am. I am who I am. And you take me on my terms. I don't take people on their terms. The great I am has sent you. And he said, say this to the people of Israel. I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel. The Lord, the God of your father's The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. Now, real quick, one tip. If you've been a Christian for a long time, you probably know this. Maybe not. When you look at your English Bible, sometimes the word Lord has a capital L, small O-R-D, and sometimes it's capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. You probably see that right there in verse 15. He says, "Say say this to the people of Israel, the Lord, you see how it's all caps? That's the word I am. And this is the first time we see it. We'll see it a lot from here on out, like Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd. The I am is my shepherd. And so Mo, God is giving Moses his name, and he's encouraging him to use it. I mean, say it. Say, Lord. Say, Yahweh. And what has been done to you in Egypt, and I promise that I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, a land flowing with milk and honey. And they will listen to your voice. And you and the elders of Israel shall go to the king of Egypt and say to him, The Lord, the I Am, the God of the Hebrews, has met with us. But each woman shall ask of her neighbor and any woman who lives in her house for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing. You shall put them on your sons and on your daughters, so you shall plunder the Egyptians. Now, I don't know about you, most of the time when I'm like banging through Exodus on a reading plan, you know, get through the Bible in a year or something, you're just kind of plowing through. Uh, you're just, you just remember the plagues and the burning bush and there's these highlights that you remember, but I don't remember the scene where the Israelites are being begged to go. Now, the Israelites have been a cause of pain. I mean, there's, you know, there's frogs everywhere. All the vegetation is gone. Locusts ate everything. Um, and then all their firstborn sons are dead because of Israel. And they're like, they've been begging Pharaoh for like three plagues already or something like that. Please get these people out of here. And when those Israelite women are packing their bags, they go to their Egyptian neighbors. Got any money? And they're pouring their jewelry into the bag. Yes, we got money. Here's the safe. Here you go. Jewelry. Get out of here. So Israel doesn't just leave Egypt. They leave rich. Why does God say that? I I think what God is trying to communicate is you tried it your way and it was utter failure. I'm going to do it my way. And it's not going to be barely a deliverance or scarcely a deliverance. It's going to be in grand fashion. I mean, I'm, I'm really going to kick their teeth in. And then to put the cherry on top, you're all going to make out with their money, their jewelry, and their gold. So you have stuff to barter with out there in the wilderness and when you get to the land where you're going. God doesn't just barely deliver. He delivers in grand fashion to show that He's not just barely sufficient to deliver. He's the only one that can deliver and make it effective he delivers when no one else can he delivers because no one else can so what does this have to do with false conversions in the church has everything to do with it because the calling that god has on every life is to respond to the gospel of jesus christ you're a slave to sin you're stuck in egypt And you can't deliver yourself. You can't do it. You can try. You can try to do it. But you can't. The only way you can be delivered out of sin is if I do it. If I'm the one. If you read this again sometime, this conversation that God has with Moses, you'll see how many times God says, I, my, I'll do it. Me, my covenant. I'm the one. I'm going to do it. I'm going to say it. And then they'll listen to you. In other words, the reason why they didn't listen to you last time is because you were me, my, I. But now you're going to go with a message to Pharaoh that's saying, God says, quote, me, my, I, I am, I am the one. Tell them I am sent you. And I think for many of us, maybe some of us, or when I say us, I mean Christians, or people, Americans, especially, we respond to the gospel message thinking, I am, instead of recognizing that's God's name. I can't, I can't do it. God is the one that's going to be able to deliver. Not, not me. Not. I'm going to go home and fix my life and patch it all up. And then, and then that's the Christian life. But that's, that's not the Christian life. The Christian life isn't one of pick myself up by the bootstraps. The Christian life is one of surrender to complete reliance on God. You remember in John 8, you don't have to turn there. In John 8, John has a bunch of arguments, right, in a row with Jesus and the Pharisees. And he has this argument about Abraham, right? Jesus says to them, look, if you keep my words, you'll escape death. You won't die if you keep my words. That's kind of an odd response, but they said, Abraham died? Even Abraham died, right? Abraham, the the first patriarch, he died. And you're saying if we listen to your words, we won't die? (laughs) Jesus responded by saying, well, the thing about Abraham is that he rejoiced to see my day. You see what Jesus is doing there? You've got Abraham up here, like I'm down here, and I'm saying, Abraham's ultimate desire was to see me. I'm the man. I'm the one. I'm the one that all Scripture is pointing to, not Abraham. So yes, if you obey my words, you'll have life. And they said, how do you know what Abraham desired? You're not even 50 years old. You're saying you know what Abraham desired? So what does Jesus say? Before Abraham was, I am. I am. Why do they want to pick up stones and kill Jesus? You know when people say Jesus never, you know, Jesus never, uh, uh, re, you know, claimed to be God. <laughs> why do they? Why did they want to kill him? They wanted to kill him because he's going back to Exodus, the burning bush moment where Yahweh says, "I am," and Jesus is saying, "That's me. I'm the self sufficient one that doesn't need anybody else, but everyone else needs me. I'm the creator." I'm the one that everything is pointing to and that everything is ultimately about. So if we don't miss what he's saying in John 8, he starts out with this issue of death. How do you escape the bondage of death? Eternal death, spiritual death, separation from God. How do you get out of that slavery? Abraham can't do it. Moses couldn't do it. The great I am has to do it. That's Jesus' point. So here we are. We find ourselves in a culture where there's a lot of churchy folk that are leaving church. There's a lot of people going to church, don't know what they're looking for. The worship band starts off with Highway to Hell because they think it's cool and they want to connect. But people are leaving. I think it's because people aren't being delivered. And they're not being delivered because they're being sold a bill of goods that they can deliver themselves by following a five-step sermon or by downloading the pastor's blog and following his tips. I don't know. By going to church enough, by changing how we dress or changing how we act or changing the people you hang out with. Those are all things that probably should naturally happen when we, when we give our lives to Christ. But that's not conversion. We wonder why when we have membership classes, we have two classes and then an interview. The first class is about what we believe. And we want to know that you know this is what we believe here at this church. The second class is here's how we roll our MO at CFC. Here's, here's, here's our DNA. Here's what we're like. Not every church is like this. Here's what, this is what we're like. So if you're going to be a member here, we want you to know that and be on board with that. But after that is the elder interview. We want to sit with you, and I'll speak for myself. I want to look you in the eye and ask you your testimony. And when I hear things like, well, I lost my job. I was really depressed. I needed something. I needed something to kind of pick me up, a little picker-upper, like a spiritual caffeine. I needed to kind of just, you know, uh, get motivated. And so I Googled a few churches. I liked the sermon. I liked the singing. I visited. The people were nice, and I want to be nice. I want my kids to be around people that are nice. Nice is good. Nice is nice. Right? I have, still haven't heard a testimony yet. Because my ultimate question isn't, why did you start going to a church? You know why that's not my question? Because that's not the question that needs to be answered to escape death. You know, the, the, the offer of the gospel is not start coming to church. The offer of the gospel is to recognize That you're enslaved to sin. You're in bondage to death and you deserve it because death is the wage that is earned by the sin that we do. And the only way out of that bondage isn't anything that I can do. The only way out of that bondage to sin and death is the great I am who's Jesus Christ himself. I need to get to that place like the Israelites were where they were crying and groaning, groaning and crying And then God responds with the covenant. Have we skipped that part? When people ask me, is my child too little to become a Christian? My thinking is, are they too little to be broken? Do they get it? I'm not asking, do they get the theological concepts that God exists, that God is good, that we're sinful. They can get those concepts, but are are they shattered about it? I don't know, were we? See, I think that this, this idea of brokenness, and I'm going to end with this, this idea of brokenness is not just crucial to understand for when you enter Christianity, but it's crucial to understand to live Christianity. You'll remember in 2 Corinthians 12, Paul is already a believer, gave his life to Christ, on that road to Damascus, Jesus stepped in, why are you persecuting me? Smashed his life to bits. He gave his life to Christ. And then here he is. He's an apostle. He's a preacher. He's a church planner. He's a Bible writer. No one has more books in there than him. But he's got this thorn in his flesh. And God wants that thorn there. And Paul prayed three times. It's like Paul saying, man, three times. I normally pray once and it happens. Three times. Some of us are like, dude, try three years praying the same thing. Three times I prayed this. And God wouldn't remove it until Jesus spoke to me and said, I can't remove that, Paul. I can't remove that because if I remove that, you're going to get real conceited. And when you're conceited, you think highly of yourself. I can't use you. That's you operating on your power instead of my power. It's not the Christian walk. The Christian walk is the recognition that I can't. And if God has to allow a thorn in your side for that to happen, that's what he's going to allow to happen. If he needs you to be stuck out in a land like Midian for a while, for you to take 40 years to finally come to your senses, or 80 years, that's what God is going to allow to happen so that you can solve your ultimate problem, which is bondage to sin and death. We're naturally conceited in the sense that we think we can do it. We think we can escape. We think we can fix ourselves ourselves. But self-converters are never converted. We can't deliver ourselves and we'll never be truly delivered from that bondage until we recognize only God can do the delivering. So do we still pray? Yeah, we still pray a prayer. It could be off a card. It could be the prayer your grandmother prayed and said, repeat after me. You can repeat a prayer. That's fine. But the prayer is not effective because the words have magical power in them. The words are effective when you understand what the words mean and the words contain stuff like confession, repentance, and your heart is contrite when you're praying that prayer. You're sorrowful over your sin. You all know the difference between saying I'm sorry and repenting, right? You can come to God and be like, I'm sorry. I'm sorry I got caught. I'm sorry my life is in shambles. I'm sorry I did those things. I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. And those are apologies, but repentance isn't an apology repentance is a turn of heart where you abhor what you did and you recognize that you're going to keep doing it because it's you're chained to it and the only way to break those chains and move forward in christ is in christ for christ to be your deliverer maybe there's somebody in here this morning and this is maybe waking you up a little bit you're going oh my goodness i've been going to church i'm a church goer but have i ever been broken over my sin That's something to reckon with. If you don't have it, you can ask the Lord for it. If you don't have that that sense of repentance, you can ask the Lord for it. And if you're asking the Lord for it, that's probably already Him moving in you for it to happen, for it to be there. Maybe you are a believer and you've just kind of been wandering for a while. You feel stuck. You're not really growing spiritually. Other people are around you. Your spouse is going ahead of you, and you just kind of feel spiritually stuck. Maybe this is a place to return to like Paul needed. Paul was saved. He just needed to be brought back to that place of remembering brokenness and contrition because, you know what, Paul, you're not all that, man. He needed to be reminded of that, and maybe we do too. If you have someone that you're praying for, a loved one that's not saved, and you feel like you're trying to take deliverance into your own hand. And can, I, can I give them the right book? Or can I send them to the right website? Can I connect them to the right church? Can I, can I work in the conversation the right way? And you feel a little bit like it's in your hands, right? It's not. God can pluck that person when he wants to. So pray. Last thing, promise. There are Fridays. There are Fridays, I want to do this in a way where it's not, I'm not leveling a rebuke, I just want to... There are Fridays where we meet here to pray, we meet here to pray, and the parking lot is full. Almost full, there's very few spots, the parking lot is pretty jam-packed over there. But most of those cars aren't people here to pray. Most of those cars are full of people that are addicted to a substance, usually alcohol, And they meet downstairs to go over the same 12 steps that they started with years ago. And they're packed down there, guys. They're pulling up tables. They've got coffee. They're eager. They're wanting. They're desiring. They're going to cut time out of their schedule because alcohol is ruining their life. And they're going to 12 steps for answers. Step one, do this. Step two, do that. Can they deliver themselves? They can stop drinking, they can stop drinking, but can they deliver themselves from the ultimate problem? Of course not. I'd love to see the day where the parking lot's full because we're all up here recognizing it doesn't matter how hard you work, it doesn't matter how often you tuck in your kids, how much time you spend with your spouse, the health of your marriage, the, the stewardship of your parenting, The quality of your spiritual life in Christ is dependent on God's work in you and not how well you can work. When we recognize that, we pray, because what else do we have? And so we don't sit around 12 steps or three steps or five steps. It's not that we don't practice spiritual disciplines. It's that we recognize it doesn't matter what I practice if I don't have the broken recognition that I need God. He's the I am and I'm not. And it should scare us because if God wants your attention, he'll break you to get it. He will break you to get it, and it's loving of him to do it. But maybe it doesn't have to come. Maybe your life doesn't have to get smashed to bits for you to come to your own burning bush moment and realize you need God, you need to stop operating on your own strength. Maybe some of us can dodge some of those Job-like bullets that we read about in that book i ask the worship team to come up. And if there's anyone in here this morning who wants to pray, you want to talk, maybe you walked in here, you thought you were saved, and <laughs> now you're confused, we want to talk with you. Please talk to me, someone wearing a green lanyard, one of the elders, anyone on the worship team, and we'd love to talk with you about your relationship with Jesus Christ. If you're able to stand, please stand, and let's close in a song together.